history repeats itself. The individuals who were worried about today in the organization uh, grew up in the organization in many cases, and we can learn a lot by looking at those types of materials. Hey everyone, welcome back to this edition of the Search Podcast. This is your producer, Major Haziano, from the Department of Social Sciences at West Point, New York. Today, I'm excited to bring you an episode where we talk about some of the latest research that involves our department's Combating Terrorism Center, specifically on deconstructing the insurgent and terrorist organization known as the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. The CTC's Audrey Alexander moderates this discussion featuring Dr. Daniel Milton and Dr. Craig Whiteside, two scholars focused on the Islamic State movement. Dr. Dan Milton is the Director of Research at the Combating Terrorism Center and an Associate Professor in the Department of Social Sciences. Dr. Craig Whiteside is an Associate Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College and is part of the Resident Program at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Ms. Audrey Alexander is a researcher and instructor from the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point, and she was a senior research fellow at George Washington University's Program on Extremism prior to coming to West Point. With that intro out of the way, here's the episode. Hi there. I'm Audrey Alexander, a researcher and instructor at the Combating Terrorism Center here at SOCH. And today, I'll facilitate a discussion between two of my favorite scholars in the field of terrorism studies, Dr. Daniel Milton and Dr. Craig Whiteside. Both are experts in the Islamic State movement, so I've asked them to speak to some of their research. First up, I want to introduce Dr. Craig Whiteside, an associate professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, who's part of the resident program at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Thank you, Audrey. It's uh, it's an honor to be back at West Point and to be with you talking uh, on this podcast, and I uh, look forward to our conversation uh, with two of my favorite uh, researchers in the field. Big fans. Thanks so much. So as a former Army officer, Dr. Whiteside has firsthand experience dealing with the Islamic State movement in Iraq. Thankfully, we're also joined by Dr. Daniel Milton, who's the research director at the Combating Terrorism Center, and he's also an associate professor in the Department of Social Sciences, aka SOCH. Hey, Audrey. Nice to be here, and of course, great to be here with Craig and looking forward to this excellent conversation. Thank you both for joining this discussion. To kick us off, I want to ask about some of your latest work on the topic of the Islamic State, its organizational structure, and details about the group's day-to-day operations. For listeners, it might help for me to offer a bit of context about how Dr. Whiteside and Dr. Milton tackle this work. In short, both researchers are known for using primary sources to piece together a better understanding of the group. These materials generally include products produced by the Islamic State, its leaders, soldiers, and administrators. In addition to things like speeches and propaganda disseminated by the Islamic State, they also use something called collected exploitable material, which essentially means documents picked up off the battlefield. With that backdrop in mind, I'd like to tee up Dr. Whiteside and then Dr. Milton. So first up, Uh, Dr. Whiteside, can you please tell us a little bit about the latest project you're working on and what you're learning from the material you're studying? So the the last project that I published was with George Washington University's program uh, on extremism. It's based off the ISIS files uh, project from the New York Times. 
and it looked it looked at uh, primary sources that were collected during the caliphate period of the Islamic State, uh, and my specific directive was to look at how they formed the Department of Soldiers uh, from a bureaucratic perspective, uh, administrative perspective, and then how they expected that department to run the war effort when it was in the caliphate period. That's when the primary source documents were collected. It's an area where not a lot of work's uh, been done, although my colleague right here has has done uh, some work on that as well. Um, excellent work. And so um, I think lots more to be done. Some of the things that uh, we found in the in the publication, it's a research team uh, for George Washington, was um, to understand what the structure looked like. It's quite difficult. They don't have, uh, they didn't publish anything that made the overarching structure what it looked like available to us. We had to try to piece it together from a lot of archival and uh, exploited documents. So that was one thing we were trying to do. Um, I feel like we reasonably got a decent picture of what um, some of the functions, administrative, logistics, headquarters, um, bringing in uh, human resources. So so those uh, different functions of uh, of a state's, a pseudo-state's military arm. And then uh, the other thing that really struck us after uh, looking through the documents was the ideological aspects of, of this particular um, Department of Soldiers, the Diwan al-Jun. And that's uh, the role that they had uh, of Sharia advisors down to, uh, and at all levels, when they could fill it. Not, it was not, not clear that they were able to fill it all the time. And the role that a Sharia advisor would have in, let's just say, uh, a low-level tactical unit on the battlefield, and that was quite surprising to us. It's uh, it's an indication of a of a very ideological army, one that's not just projecting or cheap talk, but actually trying to live the ideology that they write about and proclaim and then try to indoctrinate into all their soldiers. Has a lot of implications on uh, on how they view just war at that tactical level, which is quite different than our construction of it and understanding, uh, but also financing because a lot of uh, Islamic State financing happens uh, at the tactical unit and then is pushed pushed forward. So that's that's the, the latest uh, uh, current project I'm working on right now is um, the role of ideology in the early Islamic State, al-Qaeda in Iraq, and even before then, and then how that how that shaped their evolution and rise uh, in comparison to their rivals. So once again, using primary sources, but this time more of a focus on their rival resistance and jihadis in the 2003 to 2013 period, and and look at how the political competition amongst them was shaped by their individual ideology and political objectives, and how the Islamic State was able to defeat all of these other rivals in their political uh, competition. Awesome. It's great to hear about your work. And I think one thing to really contextualize here that's so interesting is violent extremist groups like the Islamic State are so dynamic. So when you're looking at their organizational structure and piecing together snapshots of the groups at different times and looking at how they evolve and uh, exploit their landscapes, looking at the political situation and, and even how they try to bake in oversight where possible when they have the manpower and resources to do so or what they're prioritizing or how they're leveraging uh, all the tools at uh, within their reach. So with that, um, 
We'll turn it over to Dr. Melton. In June of this year, you published a new report called Structure of a State, Captured Documents in the Islamic State's Organizational Structure. Luckily, the title gives us a good uh, teaser for what you really tackled there. But please talk to us about that project and highlight some of its key findings. So it's, uh, it's an interesting project that builds on the long history that the CTC has in examining primary source documents that were picked up by U.S. military forces on the battlefield uh, in Iraq or Syria. In this case, these documents highlight more of the Iraqi side of the Islamic State's organizational structure and in many cases parallel what Craig was describing in terms of the findings related to the the Department of Soldiers. But what this document or the set of documents that we looked at for this report were, um, were essentially the Excel spreadsheet that was used to keep track of payroll for the group's uh, organizational structure to include its soldiers, but also its non-soldier employees. And I think that that's one of the interesting things about this piece in particular is uh, it certainly reemphasizes, and this is one of the key findings, the group's desire to be a fighting organization. You know, we see divisions, brigades, battalions, companies, the organizational structure that we would expect to find, not in a ragtag fighting force, but in a fighting force that is really trying to project strength and to be able to achieve military objectives on the field, albeit, as Craig pointed out, uh, with an ideological twist, because that is not uh, you know, inconsistent with what they were trying to achieve. And so I think that was an interesting part of what we saw as well, even just looking at the payroll records. Um, but then you kind of were able to look a little bit beyond some of the, the fighting aspects of the organization in these records. So about 80% approximately of the payroll records were for individuals in the Department of Soldiers, and so fighters. 20%, however, were for individuals uh, who were doing other functions in the group's state. And so these would be individuals working in the education department, in the police sector, uh, in the real estate, taxation, those kinds of things. And so we were able to find, by looking at those documents, that the group was placing not just a propaganda emphasis on governance, but actually paying people to do this kind of stuff. And so I think that was one of the findings that that stood out to us, um, was that by looking through these payroll records, we could see not just that the group had that emphasis, but where it placed that emphasis. And so, for instance, the Department of Soldiers consumed the largest amount of, of manpower Uh, But then the next most prominent organization was the Department of Judgment and Grievances, which happens to also be the location for the local police force. And there were a lot of individuals who were paid to maintain that regular security that we often read so much about in research as being one of the most important things that, that an organization can provide if it's going to try to maintain some level of order and either fear or respect among the people. And so we saw a heavy emphasis on that security component and what the group was trying to provide outside of its warfighting capability. And I think that was really an, an interesting thing that stood out to us. And since Craig uh, started off with you know sharing a little bit of the future work, I'll go ahead and drop a little teaser for the Soch podcast family here as well. Uh, And so the next project or one of the next projects that we're looking at involves uh, several hundred documents that were published by the Islamic State's delegated committee. 
And so this is the organization that was responsible at the higher level of the group for kind of the overall administration, determining policies, uh, dealing with exceptions to policy, and trying to figure out how to provide the the overall uh, marching orders, if you will, for the group's governance efforts. And so we've been fortunate to be able to identify a batch of documents uh, that will allow us to look at how the group uh, at the highest levels tried to manage and govern its state. And so that's something that we're looking forward to doing in the next few months. Terrific. And for listeners, uh, this research on the delegated committee is really interesting because, again, building on our comment earlier about how organizations are dynamic, so are decisions about what their priorities are and how they change over time. And within the Islamic State, the delegated committee is sort of a body that experiences a lot of that change and different pressures because of its responsibilities for sort of dictating the agenda of the group based on religious jurisprudence. And um, it's a really fascinating compartment within the Islamic State's bureaucracy because of the purpose it serves. So thank you both for giving us a taste of your latest research. Now, if I may, I'd like to revisit a project both of you collaborated on around this time last year concerning the leader of the Islamic State. So if we trace back a little, listeners might remember the death of the former Islamic State leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, which occurred in October 2019 during U.S. military raid in northwestern Syria. Shortly after his death, the group had to appoint a new leader, and they chose Amir Mohammed Saeed Abdulrahman al-Mawla. To keep it simple, we're largely going to refer to this man, who's currently believed to be the leader of the Islamic State, as Maula or al-Mawla. Long story short, when Maula became the leader of the group, there was a fair bit of uncertainty about who he was or what his track record was, at least in the public domain. And that's where Dr. Melton and Dr. Whiteside step into the scene as they navigated an incredible opportunity to shed some light on who Almala really is. Dr. Melton, can you describe this opportunity and give us some insights on the project you led for the Combating Terrorism Center? What did you learn from this initiative? Yeah, so this was a really interesting opportunity that, uh, that sort of came up out of nowhere, but was based on the CTC's history and experience in looking at unique sources of documents that were generated by the U.S. military. And so in this case, uh, Almala, as it turns out, had actually been detained by U.S. forces in Iraq in 2008, following some military operations that had identified him as a key figure in the group. And so during his detention, he was uh, interviewed or interrogated a number of times by U.S. military forces, and summaries of each of those sessions were produced and then used for you know, tactical military purposes Uh, following their creation. After that point, they just sat on U.S. government servers for a long time uh, and weren't used. Uh, At some point in time, the U.S. government decided it might be worthwhile to provide these documents to outside eyes, if you will, to to examine them, uh, to be able to understand what they tell us about the group's leader, especially after Amala was elevated to the position Uh, of the group's caliph, it was important to be able to use these documents to understand some of those unknowns that you referred to earlier. And so they provided those documents to us with the hope that not only would we be able to do an analysis of them, but that we could bring together a group of the world's best experts on this subject so that they could help us understand what these documents told us about the group, about its leader, and about uh, potential opportunities to 
to undermine the group's influence. Having received those documents, we set off to, to try to figure out what they told us and, and to assemble uh, a group of experts that could help us make sense of it all. So just to highlight some of the folks who joined the CTC for that project, we had Dr. Gina Ligon, we had Dr. Cole Bunzel, and Dr. Hararo Ingram, and of course, our other guest, Dr. Craig Whiteside. So with that, I'd also like to turn it over and say that you were one of the researchers who helped unpack the information gleaned from the tactical interrogation reports, also known as TIRs. So given what you know about the Islamic State movement from a, a research perspective, what struck you about Maula and, and the story of his contributions to the Islamic State movement? You know, one, I'm very thankful for the opportunity to, to participate on this project. It's, uh, it's a very unique um, experience to be able to, to contribute. I think it's a best practice, and it's something that, uh, that should be done more regularly, I think, as Daniel's kind of hinting at. You know, I'll just tie it into the two projects that I've been working on That's that shows kind of the, the relevance of being able to look back to documents from 15 years ago and be able to help us today, or, or at least help me today, understand this group, how it evolved, and what it looks like today. Because it, what, it, what it looks like and operates today is, is uh, in a large function, you know, the experience of its own history. Um, one is the... Maula in in these documents was working on the integration of Sharia into these different uh, subunits of the the early Islamic State of Iraq in 2007 when he was the Sharia advisor and the the deputy of of Mosul, and uh, that's reflected in what what we saw in the de, the Department of Soldiers articles uh, about the role of ideology. But it's really fascinating that that the the current leader of the Islamic State, as we understand, uh, was working on this uh, in 2007, just to show you the history and the role uh, of the Sharia and how it's evolved over time, the integration of that. And we see that in the media department with Sharia representation in there today and how it vets its products. Uh, and then the other is uh, my, my current research. Uh, I've learned from these particular documents as well, and that's how Mala as the Sharia was a pivotal figure in relations with other resistance groups in Mosul and the dynamics between the early Islamic State of Iraq and uh, its, its resistance rivals comes out in this story and, and helps me understand the current project about the political competition between how it's interacting with others, how it was recruiting uh, other members from Mujahideen army and so on. So, you know, I think it's just a, an example of the value of, of doing these kind of uh, investigations and, uh, and revealing them, not just for scholars, but for policymakers. I think if we understand that this experience and research and uh, the products that CTCs produced on the MALA TIRs has helped shape policymakers and practitioners in the U.S. government, and I think that's what we're trying to do a lot of times. Absolutely. And this is just such a tremendous opportunity space to piece together and deconstruct uh, organizations and really learn from the past to improve how we act in the future, which sounds really rudimentary, but it's such an effective practice and, and taking time to reflect to improve our capabilities is really important. So I'm actually going to kick it back over to 
Dr. Melton, for some additional comments. Oh, thanks, because uh, as Craig was speaking, one of the things that really stood out to me is um, the value of the analysis of this historical material for our current problems. I think that sometimes that's not, uh, although you mentioned it's a rudimentary lesson, it's actually not one that is well incorporated into how we think about analysis of this type of material. Um, obviously, the CTC, Program on Extremism, uh, I'm in Tamimi. A lot of individuals have tried to bring as much of this primary source material to light, but there's so much more that could be done uh, if we had uh, the perspective that, uh, that Craig has outlined in terms of analyzing this material, not just for its historical value, but because uh, history repeats itself. The individuals who were worried about today in the organization uh, grew up in the organization in many cases, and we can learn a lot by looking at those types of materials. And so to that point, uh, if there are any listeners on the SOCH podcast who uh, have the opportunity to, to influence the release of additional material, I know that Craig and I would certainly be eager recipients of that. And I think that it would prove to be a really beneficial way for us to extract more value from this material, which is simply waiting to be to be looked at. And methodologically, just weighing in as, as the moderator, it's so interesting to put this type of research using primary documents in context with the range of other research methods. So for example, having used court documents as tools for analysis before, there is a case in the United States where a media operative with ties to the Islamic State based in Chicago, Ashraf al-Safu, is working to make decisions for this sort of pro-IS media outlet. And those court documents suggest that there are ties to personnel in the media department who are sort of directing al-Safu's activities based on sort of partisan ties within the organization that even link back to rifts within the delegated committee that we discussed earlier. So this is all a somewhat complicated way of saying, once we can start layering social media research and use court filings and understanding of legal cases around the world with this primary source material that's captured enemy material, we can start to piece together a really, really interesting picture of the organization and how it evolves and also how uh, ISIS Central can relate to its affiliates or operatives around the world. So uh, it's really a tremendous opportunity space to not only go after figureheads and challenge perceptions or, or give a true perception of who they are, but also connect it with other parts of the field and other parts of the research, even just using open source uh, information. But I think that this is a really good place to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time and your willingness to share your expertise with the SOCH podcast and its listeners. Research like this helps us understand how the Islamic State operates, which has tremendous implications for combating that organization and groups like it in the short, medium, and long term. So thank you again for your time and have a great day. Thanks for having me, uh, Dan and Audrey, and uh, I hope my Naval War College colleagues won't mind me saying beat Navy. Thanks again, Audrey. It's good to be here. Go Army. Thank you for listening to the Soch Podcast. A special thanks to our guests, Dr. Daniel Milton and Dr. Craig Whiteside, for coming on to the show and sharing their research. Thanks also to Audrey Alexander for moderating this discussion. If you're interested in learning more about the Combating Terrorism Center and the amazing work that they do, be sure to check out their website at ctc.usma.edu. The CTC also publishes a monthly newsletter called the CTC Sentinel, which covers contemporary terrorism issues. 
It is accessible for free through their website. Please send any comments, critiques, or suggestions to socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu. We'd love to hear back from our listeners and are always looking for new episode ideas. The views expressed on this podcast belong to those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. And finally, thanks again to the West Point Band for letting us use their music. This is Majoriano, signing off. Till next time.